Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am comedian and science enthusiast Shane Moss. My guest today is marine biologist and science communicator Skylar Bear is joining me. Skylar, why don't you give yourself a proper, more thorough introduction? Tell us all about yourself. What's your life story? Uh, <laughs> uh, just um, set up a little bit of uh, what you do because I, I I know that you're into uh, I know that you're a marine biologist, but you do lots and lots of science communication. So if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure thing. Thanks, Shane, for having me on the yeah. show. And uh, I don't know that your your show is long enough for my whole life story. Oh. But <laughs> but um, I right, right. I'll give you the highlights so far. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, on the on the science side of things, I am uh, an assistant professor at Roger Williams University in the biology department. And I do aquaculture and extension work as part of my job. Extension means engaging with the community, uh, specifically around like aquaculture and fisheries work. Um, so that's some of what I do. And this is my first semester starting. Uh, so it is a wild time to start a job as a professor. <laughs> that's a horror story that you just shared with me. Uh, that's, that's, that is... That is... Uh, the absolute worst possible situation to be in. How's well, it going so far? I mean, it's, you know, I, I will say that I am super, super lucky that I got this job. Uh, I signed my contract like right before the pandemic really took off. And there are lots of people that have had um, early career folks who are super vulnerable professionally who've had um, negotiations just disappear as universities pull in their budget strings and so yeah. I'm really lucky and I work in a really great department. And I have to say, um, I'm, I'm a high risk person for COVID. I will get into that later probably. But uh, so I teach remotely. I'm not on campus this semester, um, which is they, too bad. They have, uh, they're doing in-person. Where, where are you? Where, where's, <laughs> where's Roger Williams? It's in, it's in Bristol, Rhode Island. And actually what they're doing is they test all the students and staff and faculty that are on campus twice a week. Um, and they have changed so much on campus to make, uh, you know, they do social distancing, they do mask wearing, they, any student can access a class remotely. Um, they've been doing a really good job of really trying to, to make the in-person part possible, but the testing twice a week is really uh, the big thing that, that makes that work. And I think they've had less than 1% of um, uh, the testing population test positive since mid-August. That's amazing. So that's actually pretty good considering some of the horror stories that have happened on other campuses. And they, they've contracted out the testing through this institute called the Broad Institute, which is based in Massachusetts. And there are a lot of small colleges throughout New England that have contracted with them to test their student population um, regularly. There are different schedules for different schools and what they think they need so you know um people are making it work for the what, most part what are the what are the results i mean how, how long does it take to get a result when they 
with their I test. think it's I think it's like twelve hours at most or that's something like bad. that. It's like next day kind of results is my understanding. Um, I that's just what I've heard. I I am not in the testing program because I'm remote this semester, but. Um, yeah, I think that people are mostly happy with how it's going, although, you know, there are bumps in the road, um, but uh, they're figuring it out as they go, right? They're, there's a lot of uh, building the plane while flying at situations happening this year, right? Yeah, yeah. So, and that includes all universities, right? So. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I've, I've been, I've sat in and um, several classes uh, of, of different past guests and stuff this year and it's been interesting to see how different people are managing I I have uh, I you know I will say I'm in um, outside of a little city called Lacrosse, Wisconsin it's not that mm -hmm. small it's like a uh, I don't know 40,000 or something like that and um, I'm a small town outside of it uh, but um, I I've had two, I had two scares from in my like bubble recently, like, you know, someone in my bubble had been in contact with someone that was positive. It happened like twice. Uh, it, it hadn't happened at all. It happened like twice in two weeks. And then we went to look into testing and here they won't even let you get a test if you don't have symptoms, mm -hmm. which is uh, insanity. Um, mm -hmm. and then, and then, uh, which is like the main, the whole problem with COVID is right. the asymptomatic spread. Right. If it wasn't, if we were just relying on symptoms, there'd be nothing to worry about. Um, I mean, not nothing, but it would be such a, uh, smaller threat than it is. But, but then you can, you can go like... There's certain things like once a week or every other week or like some city nearby you can drive to and pay for and like all, all these, you know, there's, there's ways around it. It's, it's not easy. And those, those results are like four to five days. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> Which is like. It's a long time to wait. That's a really long time to wait. And all our bars <laughs> are open here and everything else it is a tricky situation um but yep. but uh yeah well i'm i'm uh I've, that's interesting to hear um that that's the way things are going on over there it sounds yeah, like yeah i mean sensitive. i wouldn't say um i i'm not I'm not that envious of everyone that's had to be on campus i think it's uh, it's stressful teaching remotely, but it's a different kind of stressful having to deal with all the logistics um, on campus. And uh, although I've just joined the department, I've been really impressed with my colleagues, both in the staff and the faculty, who've made a lot of things work and have been a huge part of um, uh, making the COVID testing happen, even, you know, like they're the ones that really helped figure out how the university could contract out to the Broad Institute to, to do twice a week testing. So, um, you know, I, I think that everyone is dealing with a lot with this, but um, I've been pretty impressed so far as a, as a new person on campus. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, I, uh, let, let's get into, uh, let's get into your, uh, work specific. Uh, first off, what's the science, what is the science communication stuff that, um, that you do. Yeah, sure. You have your um, own... 
Well, let's see. Uh, so I, I guess I'll back up. When I was a yeah. grad student, I got really interested in science communication for a couple of reasons. So I kind of dabbled in a lot of stuff. I had my own podcast for a long time called the Strictly Fish Wrap Science Radio Hour. Um, it was actually out of a local station where the signal didn't even really leave the town uh, in Maine. And then um, I did a bunch of <laughs> in Maine too. Yeah. Why yeah. didn't Why didn't you just put it out digitally? There's oh, no I one did. in Maine. I did. Oh, okay. I did. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah. I lived in Maine for almost a decade. I, I love was, Maine. Yeah. It's where, really, where in Maine? It's really great. Uh, Mid coast Maine. How well do you know Maine? Well, I lived in Boston for six years, and I so did you know where Acadia is and Portland work. is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I did shows um, all around New England. Um, yeah, didn't get yeah. to Maine that often, but lovely. Yeah, it's it's really a great place, and so um, and I worked on a fishery species for my PhD, the the sea scallop. It's a big federal fishery, uh, and then it's also uh, an important state fishery in Maine. I think Maine is the only state that has a state fishery for sea scallops. So a lot of my work involved um, uh, communicating with fishermen and management folks. And so I had a lot of interest in communication. So, and then I got involved with the Story Collider, which have you, are you familiar with them, Shane? That's why we were put in touch originally. That was yeah. so many, what was that, like two months ago that we, uh, even, I, I kind of forgot. Uh, that, but yeah. yeah. Story Collider, tell, tell the audience all about it. Yeah, so um, if you're familiar with programs like The Moth, like mm -hmm. the personal onstage uh, storytelling, usually their stories involve something happening that's meaningful in their life. And so Story Collider does something diff um, similar, not different, <laughs> different in that almost all the stories have something uh, related to science in them. So it might be a scientist telling a story. Uh, but it might also be someone who's had a medical experience, right, which is a lot of people, um, or they took a really interesting class in high school, or, you know, there's a million different potential stories out there. And so um, I got involved with Story Collider in 2013 when I told a story for them about going down in Alvin, the submarine, because I used to do deep sea work. Um, and how I got to call my dad from the bottom of the ocean. And that was a particularly important story for me at the time because my dad had just had a really big stroke. Uh, and it was a really, it was a hard time. But I had this outlet at Story Collider to tell this story. And then I asked them, I said, well, can you guys come to Maine and do shows? And they're like, yeah, and you can be a co-producer. And I was like, I've never produced a show. I'm a grad student. <laughs> And then, um, and then, I don't know, I started helping producing shows and I really liked it and I've been involved with them here and there as a producer. Um, I don't produce as, some of the, as much as some of the other producers, but I've been producing shows for them on and off for about, I think, six years. Mm. Um, and I'm friends with a lot of the other producers. It's a great group of people. I was just so. talking about this recently where I I was explaining I I blab a lot about my uh about my personal life and uh, and I you know make myself very vulnerable and stuff like and it's not even that I I don't dislike it I just don't care one way or another like I'm I'm a open person I don't like <laughs> whatever i don't uh, i don't get like a rush out of being vulnerable or anything but the reason why i do it 
is is because um most people connect so much more like i love talking about the big concepts i love getting into like the nitty-gritty i like being like an objective observer too and i i don't really care about like my personal stake in things mm -hmm. as much i like stepping back from but uh but boy people sure attach to that uh to that personal um narrative and yep. it's i think it's really important in in science communication we're you know we're storytelling uh animals as you know and and, yeah. and it's just one of the e it's just such an easier tool that and graphs i mean people love graphs right. too I don't, I don't know what that has to do with evolution <laughs> we definitely evolved to be storytellers why we love graphs so darn much uh, 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 uh maybe they've studied that but uh well i think a lot of people are visual yeah. uh creatures i guess um uh, not everyone but a lot of people are so i that would be my guess about that but i'm not a i'm not a psychologist or a neurologist so i'm not i'm not sure <laughs> it also seems very sciencey like when when you see a when you see a graph there's something right? about it that makes people be like well okay that's legitimate this, this person has a graph they drew two circles labeled them I think they know what they're talking about. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, it gives it legitimacy if you make a figure and make it look pretty. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, do you, uh, have you, um, so this is your first year teaching. I, I'm just, I'm, I'm wondering if you've, <laughs> uh, if you've um, tried to take any of those aspects from what you've learned from your science communication and, and story collider and such in uh in in your style of of uh teaching yeah totally and i've used it for a lot of things and there's a lot of projects and um things i've gotten involved with because of story collider and the people i've worked with through story collider so uh and you'll this is going to loop back to the teaching in a second but um one of the things I did is I took a Wikipedia editing course because um, through 500 Women Scientists, are you familiar with that group? Yes. Yeah, it's like an activist uh, group, mostly women. Uh, I think it's all women um, uh, and, and or female identifying folks. And uh, one of the people who's in the leadership group is a friend of mine, Miriam Zeringhelm, who's also another producer for Story Collider. That's how I met her. And she and this woman, Jess Wade, who's a physicist, have worked really hard on getting more uh, women scientist biographies on, on Wikipedia because there's a real disparity between uh, men's and women's, like, like the amount of uh, biographies of a male and female scientists. And mm -hmm. so they offered this Wikipedia editing course um, because there's also a dearth of female editors on Wikipedia. Like it's like uh, something like less than 15% identify as women as as editors and it's a volunteer community so they they uh i applied for this course and i did it back in may and it was a lot of fun and very empowering to feel like oh now i understand how to edit things on wikipedia and it's great because it's this free open access resource you learn how to um cite things properly what are good resources all that kind of stuff and it helps improve uh, a very accessible resource to people to get the right information um, and so then I found out you could apply to do a Wikipedia course with your students, like do a Wikipedia projects. So 
the final assignment for one of my classes, actually the class I had before this interview, is uh, a Wikipedia assignment. Um, and so the Wiki Education Foundation does this great training program, and there are all these modules and exercises they prep so you can become comfortable with it before you just start putting in text on Wikipedia. So that's one way I've incorporated what I've learned. And then also I tend to, um, I tend to use GIFs a lot in my slides. <laughs> nice. And I'm very, I'm very honest with them. Uh, this is a Stories, graphs, and GIFs. Yep. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and I tend to try to pull from, um, current news articles, things that are fun. Like today I found a Halloween fish article I shared, like the scary fish we eat from the deep sea. Um, and then another thing I do is I've started um, assigning some podcast assignments. There's been some work done that shows, uh, it's called Scientist Spotlights uh, or Spotlight. I don't know if you Googled Scientist Spotlight articles or something, there's some literature that's been published that uh, shows that when you have students listen to um, either podcasts or read articles about scientists and like a diversity of scientists like demographically not just the same uh, boring old white guy in a lab coat kind of kind of profile learn you about need what... more exciting old white guys in lab <laughs> right. coats. Is that, is that what the issue is <laughs> Perhaps some women or, or people who aren't white, you know, people of color. Uh, all, what? All, yeah, right. Well, and a lot of students don't necessarily know that, that um, you know, if they're not an old white dude, that they, they can be a scientist too, right? Because we tend yeah. to want to see examples of ourselves right. in, in groups of people like, oh, I like science, but I don't see anyone, I don't see anyone like me there. I, maybe I don't belong there, right? Mm -hmm. So doing these exercises in class where you learn about the scientists and their work, you learn about a lot of different kinds of scientists from their background or their research and weave that into the science you're learning. Uh, they found that it makes students feel like um, they belong more in science, that it's more accessible, they're more interested in it. So adding that personal story dimension to learning science, right? Uh, just keeps people more engaged and feel like feels like it's something they belong to more. Um, and so yeah. I'm hoping to do more of that through my classes, uh, you know, as I get adjusted <laughs> to, to teaching the courses I'm assigned to teach as well. So, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I, it's actually a big part of why I grew out all of this quarantine hair is to inspire the homeless to uh, do more get more interested in science <laughs> themselves to be someone that they can look up to. Um, I... Oh, man. <laughs> Your beard reminds me of a Portlandia episode I just watched. <laughs> I've never seen Portlandia, oh. and I know that wasn't a compliment. <laughs> well, so <laughs> they, have, they have a whole episode or clip on how kids uh don't aren't exposed to enough germs anymore because we you know keep them so sterile in cities and so they can get beard dolls that are grown from men with beards and then harvested and their beards <laughs> are exposed to all sorts of germs yeah i uh, that's uh, that is a genuine concern with this th <laughs> with masks and everything else mm -hmm. but i've i've been I've been exceptionally cautious and and just distance extra. I do like 
eight to ten feet uh, <laughs> instead of six because I I I throw on a couple so more feet like, for the beard, right, uh, right. for the added a foot per inch, right, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I I. I I definitely think that it's uh, as 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 a science communicator myself, as as someone that um, that works hard to have a diverse uh, array of guests. It's not the easiest thing to do always in academia, yeah. and I know from. I mean, it's easier now that I'm doing things remotely and I should really be, I've been meaning to kind of up my game a little bit in that regard, but doing, touring around with a, touring around with a, a live show where I'd have two scientists join me in each city. Um, I mean, me and my, my assistant as, as well would, we would be, I mean, often that was one of the things that we really had an eye out for was any time that we could include more diversity in every in in the shows and uh i i think it's a lot better than it maybe was two three decades ago but mm -hmm. i i think that we have a I definitely have a long ways to go yeah um and so since we're still talking about diversity i should tell you that there's a a book project that I'm working on with my collaborator, Gabby Serrato Marks. She just got her PhD actually. Um, and we both told stories for the Story Collider. Well, I've told a bunch of stories for the Story Collider, but we both told stories about um, dealing with medical condition in my case and a disability in her case in, in field work. Um, I, I have a heart condition that at the beginning of my PhD rendered me unable to do scuba diving anymore. And so, but I worked in a scuba diving lab for my PhD. I had already been admitted and all that stuff. So I spent a lot of time on the boat alone in Maine on the coast waiting for divers to come up. And that was, oh, uh, yeah, you just was... broke my heart. That is, the, that is, I'm so sorry. It's, I mean, there's far worse things, yeah. but um, our, the artistic director at Story Collider, Erin Barker, who if you, if you haven't met, she's like one of my favorite people in the entire universe. Um, she and I have like a mutual fan club going on, but, <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, she suggested that Gabby and I get together. She's like, you guys should, I don't know, maybe write a book or do a project or something. And so... What we did is we solicited a lot of pitches from scientists with disabilities or medical conditions to to share their personal stories of what it's like, you know, being a scientist with their conditions. They're not all sad stories. They're like happy stories. You know, there are certain advantages or skills you develop when you're kind of different in your field. And um, we ended up, uh, we're under contract with Columbia University Press for our anthology book of all these stories called Uncharted. And so the book is due to the publisher next July, I think. Uh, so hopefully it'll be out in a year or so, but we're really, really excited. And it's honestly one of the most fun projects I've ever gotten to do. And I've gotten to meet a lot of really cool scientists. So. Well, that's amazing. That's very inspiring. Actually, hold on one second. I'm gonna show you something. Bet MGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 Moneyline wager on today's game. 
If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. BetMGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA. And there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to BetMGM.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. This is different, but related. Um, I have I, I take the covers off all of my books, but there's this... I haven't even finished it ever, but there's this Injured Brains of Medical Minds. Oh, cool. You might want to check it out. It's all people yeah. that, like, spent their entire career studying, like, Alzheimer's or whatever, and then got Alzheimer's, and then are able oh, to, yeah. like, articulate the experience from um, from the point of view of uh, an expert, or they're, like, they studied... Um, you, you know bipolar or what you know mm-hmm. and then have a manic episode themselves um but anyway thought you might be interested yeah in definitely that. um you know all that stuff is really cool because one of the things that uh i think people struggle with is like normalizing having medical conditions or disabilities and and uh all of us usually end up having some sort of condition at some point in our life and um it's okay to be different and try to figure out ways to work around um certain issues or work with issues usually yeah um and i think in science there's a lot of uh expectations of working yourself to death and if you can't do this then you know you'll never be useful in this field kind of stuff and it's just it's not true you know there's lots of ways to contribute and um, have unique ideas. And Gabby and I actually wrote a piece in Scientific American last year about uh, some of the advantages we've had having uh, conditions to work with and, and the positive side of it. Um, so Very cool. Yeah. Like what? Give me a for instance. <laughs> well, so because of, I'll talk about myself because I'm <laughs> most comfortable talking about yeah. my case. But um, I, uh, so I have this heart condition and I actually have an ICD implanted in my chest. I can feel it, it's right here. Uh, and that got implanted oh, almost nine. How, how long did that take right to get here. used to? Like uh, that you can actually, feel a thing. It, I mean, I think it took a couple months to get used to. I was 25 when it happened. And so okay. the full story is that when I was born, I had heart surgery. I had what's called the transposition of the great arteries. And so, that means like that sounds amazing. <laughs> like it's it sounds like a novel or like a, a right. great novel yeah. or something. It's like an epic, you know, tale. <laughs> yeah, that would just be the title of my life story, right? <laughs> the transposition of Skylar Bear's great arteries. <laughs> so, so what that means though is that like your heart kind of does this figure eight circulation of blood, right? Like, yeah. uh, you know, the the veins bring in the deoxygenated blood, then they get pumped to your lungs, uh, which is an ar- ar- artery, right? That's a major artery. 
Um, and then the lungs oxygenate the blood, they bring it back to the heart, and then the heart pumps it into the aorta, which goes to the whole body. And so it's sort of this figure eight kind of system. And so what happens with transposition of the great arteries is you just sort of end up with two loops that are being pumped by the heart, but they're not connecting. And so that's fine when you're in utero because you don't need to breathe. But then as soon as you start needing your lungs, that loop is still cut off from the rest of your body. And so unless you have surgery, you usually end up dying eventually. Wow. So, um, so I had that and I, ha I didn't really have any problems most of my life. Like I was, I, I'm very, uh, I'm considered very accomplished for a cardiac patient, I think by my doctors. And so, but when I was 25, I got really sick and started having these weird little arrhythmias. Um, and it turned out that whatever I was sick with sort of uncovered this, um, this condition called polymorphic arrhythmia, which just means many formed arrhythmia, which doesn't really mean anything. It just means like the electricity in my heart is kind of messed up, I guess. And so they, they couldn't, they couldn't fix it. Basically they couldn't figure out why I was having these arrhythmias. And so they just put in an ICD, um, which is like an intercardiac uh, defibrillator or cardioverter defibrillator. And so it's there to defibrillate me in case I need to be, or uh, it paces me. It doesn't pace me though, and I've only been defibrillated once by it. Um, and so let's see, that was nine years ago. And so then that happened right at the beginning of my PhD. And so I couldn't scuba dive, but I'd been scuba diving one semester, um, one season. So I kind of knew what the, the bottom looked like and what I, I was supposed to do. So I became a really good project manager, which is a really important skill for PhD anyway. So I knew how to tell people what to do when they were diving. I, I wasn't tired all the time from scuba diving. So I had more energy and time to to plan things properly, to make sure I had time to do my other experiments and coordinate with everyone. And I probably got a lot more work done overall than if I'd been scuba diving, is the short version of that. So um, project uh, management and leadership skills are really critical if you're gonna be running a lab or or anything like that. Uh, and I think the takeaway from that whole story is scuba diving is a big waste of time. Is, is that what you're... <laughs> It's fun. I, it's fun. <laughs> I would love to go. I can't believe I've never been scuba diving. All of the adventures I've been on in life, and I've never been scuba diving. Really? It's, it's crazy. Yeah. I'm on the move too much, I think. Maybe I I need to like be in a place for a while. I also yeah. have a subtitle for your book, which is How I Fixed the Electricity in My Heart. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. No, that would be pretty just good. Th throwing it out there, we can workshop it. Uh, we'll later. workshop it later, Shane. Yeah. Um. So tell us uh, a little bit about some of your uh, marine biology background, then. Yeah, sure. So let's see where to start. I guess. Um, uh, considering I we're considering we're halfway into this episode, maybe we could. <laughs> I suppose we should start talking about science. Uh, right. Eventually. Right. Well, yeah. the communication part is fun. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I got my start uh, doing deep sea work, actually. Um, and so I did an internship in an undergrad. And then I ended up doing my master's in the lab uh, at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. Um, and I got to study deep sea hydrothermal vents. And are you familiar with those, Shane? 
Um, eh, kind of. Eh, I, sure. I, I, I had, uh, I had someone on just before um, COVID that was a volcanologist. Am I mm-hmm. pronouncing that correctly? Yes, and indeed you are. Spent a lot of time <laughs> in a submarine. Um, and, and told me the most amazing stories about it. And so I know a little bit from that and having seen them in like David Attenborough documentaries and stuff. Right, but right. Let's, let's just assume that I've never heard of such a thing before. <laughs> All right. So, um, and if anyone's watching this, you should just like Google hydrothermal vents because the pictures are amazing. But, you know, it, the earth has plates, right, of, of crust moving back and forth and uh, then they make volcanoes and eruptions and earthquakes and all that stuff and it happens on the surface in some places like say San Andreas Fault uh, or other volcanic regions which are escaping me at the moment but there's a lot underwater too and so uh, there are places where there's volcanic eruptions underwater mm. and, and what happens at these places is that the very, very cold, dense salt water seeps into the cracks um, and it gets heated up by the magma underneath and then comes shooting out uh, in these vents, which have lots of, what well, to us anyway, very toxic compounds like sulfur and heavy metals and all sorts of stuff. Um, but there are all these animals that only live at these hydrothermal vents. It's really, really amazing. Mm. They can only be found at these hydrothermal vents and a lot of them either eat or have incorporated in their body bacteria that specifically digest those super toxic compounds, especially the sulfur ones. And so the whole ecosystem is based on those super toxic um, compounds coming out uh, and the fact that it's warm. um, I think that helps as well right near these vents. Uh, and so there's like um, like limpets, these little snails and crabs and giant tube worms in some cases. And um, there's actually quite a lot of diversity depending where you are in the world of organisms. And hmm. I, I was studying uh, for my master's this one area, um, it's called Nine North on the East Pacific Rise, which is kind of near Mexico. So you'd fly to Mexico and take a boat out to the middle of nowhere. And nine degrees north is nine degrees north of the equator. So it's very warm, tropical area. And what happened is that there was uh, an eruption, I want to say like 15 years ago. Um, And what scientists wanted to do after the eruption is study how the community of animals changed over time. It's called succession. And it was a rare opportunity because usually you don't get to know when those eruptions happen. Um, But I think like a geologist or someone had a seismic um, uh, device that stopped beeping because it got covered in lava. (laughs) And so they're like, oh, this happened. Um, Let's take the opportunity to study these animals. And so I spent a lot of time looking at animals under a microscope. Uh, scraping sulfur off of little plates and then uh, cutting them up to find out how they reproduced. Um, So that was pretty cool. But the problem with deep sea work is that you have to have big grants to go on big boats and you don't get to go very often. And so I really liked what we, the like one cruise I got to go and I got to go in Alvin, the submarine and go down to the bottom and see those 
animals and stuff. It's really cool. Hmm. But uh, then we didn't, the lab that I was in basically didn't have money anytime soon. And I needed, um, I needed more projects or whatever for if I was going to stay and do a PhD. So I left for the master's and I went to Maine instead Mm. um, to study sea scallops. Um, Can we, before we get into sea scallops. Yes. I figured you'd have a question. I have, I have at least two (laughs) pretty big ones. Yeah. Um, Maybe this first one, I don't know if this first one's a good question or not. The second one, I think we're going to sink our teeth into. First one, drum roll, please. <laughs> um, I, it's, uh, I was thinking, I didn't realize, when I was speaking of David Attenborough, I was just um, watching some documentary or one of his newer um, docuseries and they were in South America and talking about the volcanic activity there that had there was something it was like some of the volcanoes erupt with the force of like a hundred or a thousand atomic bombs or something like that um i wish i could remember the statistic up but i did i i didn't realize that um as you were talking i didn't realize that that these um that these vents were something that stayed so active for long enough for to to create like a evolutionary uh, evolutionarily stable system where you have like an ecosystem a, yeah a whole ecosystem yeah. where where species are able to evolve and adapt to that in enough time that the vent's still there and active and be able to make use of it and sustain and then what happens when when these uh, vents go away, do like just entire species just go extinct once? Well, so it's a really good question. And it was actually like the focus of uh, a lot of the researchers I worked with at the time. And so one of the, the ways that these organisms persisted is that they uh, put their larvae, their babies in the water column and they must do it. I think a lot of them, that was one of the things we were sort of trying to, to look at is if there were seasonal patterns or not. And the expectation is there wouldn't necessarily be a seasonal pattern because um, you're not dealing necessarily with food that's created at the surface from sunlight. But also, I don't think it would be advantageous to only re- reproduce one time a year because you don't know when a volcanic eruption is going to be. So it's good to always have some babies in the water so they can recolonize. Uh, a new area. But yeah, the volcano will come and wipe everything out. Um, and that's one type of like deep sea community. There's There are other deep sea communities that live off of like uh, methane seeps and those communities are much more stable. And so it's possible that, uh, you know, some species evolved in one system and then eventually, you know, uh, some colonized uh, hydrothermal vent and evolved there too. So uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. It's really, it's That's, wild that it's possible. It is. I love that so many like fish and things do this like crazy lottery. I mean, at the end of the day, I guess it's all a pretty crazy lottery system that we're <laughs> uh, that we're in. But just to like 
the the idea of of just like having thousands of eggs or whatever all at once or, or oh, millions oh millions or this yeah. well i guess we'll see what happens maybe some not to overly anthropomorphize too much but there is something like deeply uh it, it it just like rings true for like it's symbolic of the universe or something that these little creatures are just like oh i guess we're just gonna squirt our stuff into the abyss and cross our fingers that well and, <laughs> that and life so comes of that what uh what's funny about that too is like uh almost almost sea creatures i don't i've tried to find a number on this and i haven't had much luck in recent years most marine organisms do, like if you look at species, um, they they do that kind of reproduction where, you know, it's like throwing confetti into <laughs> into the water, and um, that's that was a visual that I used for my students actually recently when we were covering yeah. covering larval dispersal, um, and so. You know, some organisms will. Those kids made a lot of jokes about that. After I hope so. Class. I hope so. That's <laughs> the point. Of... Then they get to. Then yeah. they get to um, uh, remember it. That's what I tell people. I like. I make a. I make a joke out of it, and then I remember it. Um, but right. but on top of the larvae, right? There's uh, what's called broadcast spawning, which is directly relevant to my next um, research chapter of my life. Where they put uh, the organisms put sperm and egg into the water column, and it's just like ah, they'll fertilize, right? And then we'll get babies. And so that's even it's another level of just like throwing it out there and seeing what happens, as what? opposed to growing, you know, larvae inside their bodies and then releasing them. Right. What? So what? What does that look like? First off. What exactly a is a water <laughs> column? Like, what, oh, it's uh, just the water. It's just the column of water sitting on top of uh, the bottom of the ocean, let's say. So it's called a column because we tend to think of it uh, vertically, right? Like it's a, you know, when we're thinking about where things are in the water, it's like where I on see. this column is it? I mean, I agree. It's ah. kind of a weird name, but I think it well, comes I'm glad from... I asked. Yeah. I think it comes from the idea that a lot of the time in oceanography, we look at vertical profiles, right? And we're like looking at, oh, this column of water. I see. Um, it, or, or like a core, sediment core, right? It's usually a column and you're looking at where it is on the column. Well, I'm glad I exposed my ignorance because I was picturing like the um, thermal uh columns or whatever oh, that yeah. like hang gliders use right to elevate <laughs> and that's what i thought they were i thought these little fish were uh blowing their babies into these little drifts or well, something. but it's just well yeah i mean so i'm talking more generally but uh i think one of the questions that researchers have looked at with hydrothermal vents too is so those hydrothermal vents create a plume that yeah. sort of becomes, it becomes neutrally buoyant at a certain depth, right? Like it rises and then there's some depth at which it stops rising. And so there's questions about, um, do hydrothermal vent larvae get entrained, you know, in there? Is that how they spread? Do they, do they go somewhere else in the water column? And uh, I don't know the answer to that question if it's something they've really figured out. Um, I'm sure it depends on the species. So, so. is there 
I mean, are they factoring in? Is there, are there like, is there some sort of sensory input they're using where like, oh, this is the condition that I want to, uh, ooh, it's date night. I'm I'm going over here and then and then this is where I release my confetti. Is this or, or do they just or or are they just like oh I have enough confetti stored up again to blast one off and then just get to work on the well, next. Well, I think batch that of... the answer to that is it depends. Yeah. Um, and it's it's I Some... mean, what you're talking about is spawning behavior. <laughs> Yeah, Without knowing it, it. <laughs> would be, it would be amazing if I just if I just listed the two only known <laughs> spawning behaviors that there are. There Scientists are many. have thought long and hard for many years, and what they've come up with is sometimes they blow their confetti randomly, and sometimes they're looking for a perfect spot to blow their confetti. <laughs> yeah, well, it's you know that. Might not be too far off. <laughs> that uh, is. And broad, broad turns. Yes. Um, That's yeah. ridiculous that I was even close to being anywhere near accurate with well, any of that. Well, I think with their... So I'll tell you, there are a lot of spawning behaviors where um, organisms specifically group uh, together to make sure a high percentage of the eggs get fertilized. So... If fish can swim, they can aggregate into big clusters and make the distance between their eggs and sperm in the water column shorter, right? So you're more likely to get uh, fertilization. And organisms like uh, scallops or sea urchins or something that's on the bottom, they can move closer to each other. Mm. Um, then like you have coral reef systems where multiple species will all spawn on like the same night. Uh, you know, so it's like timing is a, is a big thing. Yeah, um, I've, I've, I've talked with some coral people that got to sit out in boats waiting because the coral are getting too far apart because of the rising ocean temperature. Right. And then they, they wait for the confetti and scoop up all <laughs> the confetti to try to help it to, uh, drive and drive their boat over and dump all their confetti over on the, on the neighbor's yard. Yeah. Um, that's, right. which right. is a uh, neighbor's yard is a new euphemism. I'm right. definitely I going like, to yeah, be using. A, a confetti in neighbor's yards is an interesting <laughs> euphemism for like A hammies. lot of things. Yeah. Right. I, I've, a, after this podcast, my dirty talk is like going real next yeah. level. Uh, well, you know, I have to say it's funny, like I've, there's definitely been moments during my PhD where we've, we've had in our lab heated arguments about sperm, collecting sperm and eggs sure. and speaking super loudly. And I remember once being like, if anyone walked by right now, they'd be like, what is yeah. going on in there? So, <laughs> well, I, I, the, this is related to the other question that I, I, I definitely, I think it'll lead us in the right direction and I don't want to, why do I even... I often like explain the reasons why I'm asking a question. I don't know if that makes it more interesting or less interesting, but that's just what I do. Here we go. So you were talking about um, taking kind of fossils, uh, right? You were saying like you're you're kind of scraping. Uh, what was uh, the oh, thing? Oh, they're, they're, they're not fossils. They're not fossils. They're, they were alive organisms, and then we put them in ethanol, which kills them. And then we look at them under the microscope. 
Ah, yeah. I see. Okay, never mind. Well, uh, but then what's then... one of the things I'm scraping is the um, like all the bacteria that eat the sulfur are usually growing on those same plates. So that's that's what I meant by the scraping. I see. Well, I mean, I guess my my question will still work. So I what I was I was thinking about the ways in which scientists try to um, uh, deduct or or use inductive reasoning or whatever to to figure out more about uh, species and life and uh, for for example, you find you find some skeletal remains of some primate that's never been discovered before and you see some way in which like the the femur um the like you have a little bit of a femur and you can see like some wear and tear in it in in a certain way that and uh, and from that you can deduce that they were able to stand upright or they were upright a fair amount of the time or they have uh, a bone in their fingers that is that is bent um, more than humans, so maybe they were still climbing trees at the time, or or you you find some teeth and you realize that it was that it was able to eat fruit, uh, and from knowing that it ate fruit, then you know that it's probably a a, a, a territorial species because vegetation you don't need to be as territorial and fruit is more scarce so um so mammals that need to be around fruit trees are often a lot more territorial so you can you can figure out all of these other patterns from from these little bits of um uh, uh, evidence you can find uh, you can find a whole bunch about what their entire lives are like what mm-hmm. uh, what kind of stuff i want to ask that because i think listeners might be like Okay, this lady um, finds out why my uh, house, how um, sea scallops uh, blow their uh, <laughs> confetti. What uh, is she just into <laughs> into sea scallop sperm? What's going on? But there's there's all of these really important um, lessons that we can learn from the tiniest little bits of evidence. Right. And so I, I would say that um, the most important or the I shouldn't say the most important, but the most directly relevant, you know, line you can draw between looking at, say, sea scallop reproduction, which I haven't even really gotten into yet. But um, <laughs> oh, we will. Uh, yeah. Um, is how it impacts your ability to fish them. Right. Your mm-hmm. ability to eat them. So knowing how your food reproduces uh, is pretty important. Otherwise, <laughs> right. it's it's very easy to kill it all, and then uh, you don't have any more food, and <laughs> or that food. Um, and yeah. then it also has all these other impacts on the ecosystem, which might impact um, other things you care about, whether uh, abstractly, culturally, um, uh, deliciously. I don't know. Mm. It depends, right? Yeah, it's true. We do need to eat. All right, I'm sold. I guess this is important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yep. So um, it's also just interesting, too. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, um, there's there are things that you might be able to draw about other species after doing an in-depth uh, research on one species that, that's similar. So presumably um, some of the information we might learn from 
sea scallop spawning could be helpful for other species that spawn in a similar way based on what little we know about them. So, you know, and one cool thing about science too is you never know, you know, 30 years from now if that random paper you wrote that like two people have read is maybe useful to someone's project suddenly because that does Well, happen. you got to hope. Right. You hope, right? <laughs> when you're writing it. <laughs> damn it i hope someone's going to see this thing i have at least one paper that's a tome for my phd it's just so big and i'm like i don't know who has time to read this but it's a great review paper on a subset a very particular subset of issues if you're a grad student well no one's ever gonna argue with that because no one's ever gonna put the time in to to read it yeah um so when you're when you're studying uh sea scallop do you ever anyone ever eat their homework anyone ever have that excuse um well i (laughs) don't really so i i guess i'll explain more about what i did with sea scallops uh, other than (laughs) other than confetti the main question that for my phd work was whether or not uh, population size or density of the scallops. So density is like how many individuals you have in a given area. Um, and population size is just like the whole population size number of scallops. And so we want to see if, if they're really far apart, do you, do you get less eggs fertilized by sperm? We'd assume that if they're far apart, um, the chance would decrease because they're farther apart. And if they're close together, it would go up. Um, but that relationship actually with sea scallops isn't super linear. Uh, when we put them in little nets, it was. It was a very clear relationship. Didn't have a lot of scallops. They were far apart. Not many eggs got fertilized. Put a lot together in a small space. They, there were lots fertilized, right? Mm-hmm. But then when we put them out on their own, on like a, a, they're on the bottom that we had stakes underwater, and then we would go and monitor them and we would we would collect eggs from female scallops spawned in the lab, which is actually really hard because they spawn when they want to. So you kind of have to be there all the time. Um, so I spent a lot of time sleeping under my desk and, and waiting for scallops to spawn. And so you put these like tiny, tiny little eggs, they're orange, in these containers that have mesh around them. Um, and the mesh is so the sperm can swim in and fertilize the eggs, but the eggs can't get out. And so we take those from the lab and we'd have to rush because the eggs were only good for eight hours. And so we take them in a boat, drive down this estuary, and then put them down underwater on the bottom and hope that some males are spawning and then collect them the next day and hope that some of the eggs got fertilized. So there's a lot of hmm. ifs. And, and hopes, <laughs> but we did get data. Um, but what was really interesting is that the, the population that where they were more spread apart had similar numbers of eggs fertilized as the one where they were all close together, which we thought was kind of weird. Um, but we, the, the hypothesis that I have is that- Can I the, take a whack at yes, something? I want to yes. be wrong first and then you tell me the correct thing um so could there be some sort of like if then biological mechanism where they're able to kind of sense when when there's like not when they don't have a lot of neighbors 
um, there, there's something triggering them to be like, we better blow a lot of confetti. And then <laughs> when they, w w when things are, are getting, um, tighter, there's maybe some benefit to, uh, um, holding, off. holding off a little bit. Some of, <laughs> some of the some of the mating it would be it would be strange from like a selfish gene perspective to do something like that because that almost sounds more like group selection or something but <laughs> i'm i've had 30 seconds to think about this and now let's find out how i'm wrong well right so <laughs> so it would probably like the assumption is that it's the opposite right because presumably all animals are want to increase their reproduction right. success right and, and right. they're not necessarily thinking about their uh self right well that's why i'm saying like a, a thinking about it in a group selection way would right. probably be incorrect right so i mean i mean it's not like we sit there on the bottom in scuba diving and just sit there and watch them mm -hmm. um although you know people do try to set up cameras and stuff to to see behavior of things it's really hard in like a natural environment when the water's not very clear um because like these cells that they're releasing the eggs are like uh 70 microns across and i think i think the width of your hair is like 100 microns mm. right it varies but it's something like 100 microns so it's like less than that <laughs> my mine's like 140. i got yeah. like 140 micron hair <laughs> which is i i think i was looking at the range it was something like 50 to 150 because i was trying to explain to my class how tiny certain things were in hair yeah. widths because it was like 200 microns that's, that's how like... i measure all of life that's right, uh, that, yeah. and that's how we know if we like how close we got and like oh it's just by yeah. hair i almost yeah. was almost had all the best things happen to me right. missed it by hair yeah i mean like you could start measuring things in <laughs> beard beard hair thread counts right yeah <laughs> i i'm already on it right so um the idea is that the the like when if scallops are alone they're not going to start spawning uh maybe if they're dying that would be possible but how uh, many dogs you got around there we have two Woo! So, into um, it all right yeah Sorry that for one the, just i just got very by. just i got i got very excited for you a lot we of people just do one too. dog on. yeah i like the double dog situation Let's pack of animals that one the tan one is 17 years old oh my goodness yeah she's that very... is a long wonderful life <laughs> yes looks pretty good yeah she's uh she's i don't know how that dog is still alive she's done a lot of things that uh, <laughs> would kill most normal dogs so um, um <laughs> all right sorry for my dog tangent no no it's okay I love your dogs. um the one of the reasons why I don't have a Zoom background is because my students like seeing my dogs when they come by. Yeah. So so it, it helps. Uh, I think I hope. Um. Choo choo choo. Oh yeah. So when there aren't many scallops around, uh, we think that they might be swimming towards each other because in some of the data we found, it looked like because we would do surveys with divers that I would send the divers out and they would look at how many scallops were in each area. And it looked like on some days that the, um, 
the scallops that were far apart had like started clustering themselves. So they, my hypothesis is that they might be doing that to increase like the percentage of eggs that get fertilized. Um, mm. I don't know for sure. I have to do some more experiments and I was at the end of my PhD at that point. But uh, that's what I think might be going on. So, and there's a lot no, of things. No, we'll never, you were our only hope. And now we'll there, never know. There will be another poor grad student someday <laughs> sent on, on a reproductive PhD. They're very difficult. Reproduction work is difficult, um, especially if it's related to fertilization, because there are very few animals, like marine animals, that uh, are easy to get to spawn whenever you want them to. And a lot of the time there's a lot of waiting and some, some don't spawn in captivity well. Uh, sometimes they just die. It, it, there's just, it, there's so many variables that are really hard to control. Um, and so there's sort of a limitation on questions you can ask um, mm. with our current technology and know-how. So, um, but, uh, oh, you know what? I didn't tell you the big thing about my adventures with um, scallop gonads. You but hold so note on me? Yeah, I I always forget. Well, spill uh, it. Well, so one of the things that I did is um, I measured gonad weight or what percentage of the body weight is gonad. And so when sea scallops have a huge percentage of their body turned into gonad, that means they're about to spawn, right? Mm -hmm. And their body can be like 30%, you know, 35. It's like... That's like both your legs. Imagine if both your legs became all just like sperm. gametes. Yeah, just sperm legs. Just sperm walking legs around all day. <laughs> I, I mean, depending on how long quarantine lasts, right? that might be a reality. Right. Uh, <laughs> so that's just to give you an idea of like how much their body turns. That's amazing. In. It's that's, yeah, and that's it's, also how much sloths poop. Right. Did you know oh, that? Is about, it? No, I about, didn't know that. About thirty percent of oh their body God. weight. Well, yeah. it depends on the species, but yes. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's sort so of. So, what you... would what would you rather be? Thirty percent. Thirty percent. I don't know. I feel, I feel like you should pull. Call. You should pull your listeners. Uh, on that yeah. One. All right. All right. So, um, one of the, at one point, I was trying to figure out by doing these dissections, right? Where you look at the, the percentage of weight. Uh, and that's also, I never really ate my work because when I did dissections, I get sperm and egg all over my hands. And so I didn't really want to eat mm. it afterwards. What about you're out to a fancy dinner? You eat scallops or is that, I, or you I got think mixed I'm still, feelings? I'm still recovering. I encourage yeah. other people to eat it, but it's just- You encourage of... them to. Yeah. I mean, if it's, it's, I think sea scallops as a species in general, uh, most scallops you buy are probably um, harvested or grown sustainably. So. Okay. Sorry, I have the growl sisters behind me right now. That's, I love it. Um, so um, anyway, I was trying to figure out with these, these gonads, you know, when they get bigger and smaller, uh, if there was differences between where I was working in Maine and then farther down east at Mount Desert Island, where Acadia National Park is. And I started working with this fisherman, Andy. And Andy is a bit of a character, kind of wild. He, uh, he's 
I think interesting is the best way to put it, but he's a little bit all over the place. And I went to meet him at a gap. 15% gamete, 15% uh, feces, this guy. Which guy? Andy? Oh, yeah. yeah. A real mixed bag. He is a mixed bag. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Um, So he... He was meeting me at a gas station to give me these. I like when I said that, how accurately confused you you were when I made that super dumb joke. (laughs) Uh, You had the exact We'll go with it, though. We'll go with it. it. All right. So um, we're meeting at a gas station. He's been collecting these gonads all summer, and they're in these little things of formal in these little containers and it's this big white bucket with a cap on it and I had given him instructions and all the formal in and stuff and in Maine no one locks their cars okay like no one locks their cars there really I mean occasionally but generally speaking it's just not I'm a so thing. excited for this story so I'm waiting for him at one end of the parking lot and I can see because he has to drop his kid off at the doctor's which is exactly across the street and I actually remember I was sitting next to um, an old telephone booth and I saw someone use it. And this was even nine years ago. I was like totally fascinated. He had seen another car come in that had a University of Maine license plate on it, which is where I was at the time. And he assumed it was mine and the car was unlocked. And so and the person had gone to the store. And so he just put the bucket in their car and drove across the street. And so I didn't see him till he drove across the street. And I was like, oh, well, where, where are my samples? He's like, well, I'll put them in your car. And I was like, well, it was in my car. And then we look and the car is gone, right? It's just gone. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. And so it gets more amazing. Okay. I call all these people at the university. <laughs> no one knows where this car is, which is crazy because it's a university car. His wife posts on Facebook. Uh, calls the local paper, puts a wanted ad in the police station. (laughs) A woman who was driving the car connects over Facebook. Uh, A bunch of news articles get written about it, including uh, like Associated Press. And it was like, man loses guts. And then I wrote about it on my blog that no one reads. And then the next day I got an email from a producer at the Colbert Report. really yeah and so they came and did a piece it's seven years old now you can watch it online uh they made it like a murder mystery piece of the missing scallop gonads that is incredible yeah and look at you what some would say that was my start in science communication my my thinking was when that happened because i've no one knew who I was, and then I it went pretty well. So I was like, well, if I didn't mess that up, then I must be doing something right. So <laughs> you, I mean, you're. Uh, it's so weird that your life is uh, okay. So you were you were studying scallop, uh, scallop porn when you were uh, when you weren't um, scuba diving or in a submarine, but the newsworthy thing that happened was just someone put a bucket in the wrong <laughs> in the yeah. wrong car i mean it was hilarious and if, you, if <laughs> yeah. you watch the clip you'll see why andy is a, a gem yeah um but yeah it was uh it was a big to do and uh it uh it was mm. fun and i'm still friends with the producer she's pretty cool she uh she's moved on to other things but um she's great nice um, 
Yeah. And okay. so, yeah. Well, I I have to I have uh, because I don't want to take up your whole day here, but I have uh, a couple other things that I wanted mm-hmm. to ask you that are um I think I had two ridiculous questions. And did I have a good one? Jeez, I'm not sure that I had. <laughs> this is what I wanted I wanted to make sure and ask you. One um what what kind of a submarine are we talking about? I feel like I feel like if I was a listener to this show and the host didn't ask you about being on a submarine, they did, weren't doing their job. So it's not exactly sciencey, but Oh I no, just it's okay. Know. I didn't know if you were going to tell me what both the questions were or you want me to answer one and then the other. I'm just I'm trying to remember what the other one was. Okay. Well, so lucky for your listeners, I told a story about what it's like being an Alvin on the Story Collider. Um, oh, I'll put a, I'll make sure and put yeah, links on. Yeah, I, the... I can send you all my stories. Um, yes, there's a bunch of them on there. But uh, I'll tell you that it's so it's like a six foot diameter sphere that you're in with two other people. So um, it's it's tight in there, and they don't let you wear anything synthetic. Uh, because of fire hazards, it's, I guess you'll burn more slowly if you're wearing cotton or wool instead of any, anything synthetic. Um, and it sort of looks like, I don't know what you'd imagine the inside of a spaceship would look like with all the lights and buttons and stuff all on the Um, inside. Can I pause for a second? I was just taking in (laughs) that can you just say all of that one more time? Which, it which was part? The thing about... I Something like broke in my brain thinking about burning alive on a oh, submarine. Right. Well, and, so... Yeah. so <laughs> I'm just... and, and then I just like... My brain just shot off into all of these weird... Imagine, I just had an action movie go off in my head and... Uh, stopped listening to you straight up that's what happened yeah well uh, but... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm thinking i'm sort of going through some of the highlights of when they gave us the tour before we got to go in and because they they show you you know they open up the top and you get to look down and you're yeah. like wow that's a small space for three people and you there's this little ladder and uh then there's like co2 scrubbers you know because it's a compressed you know, the air is, it's sealed off, right? And so there's only so much air in there for three people for so many days. The idea is that you come back within 12 hours, but there's enough for, I think, three days in there. And so there's, and so it's pressurized. So, you know, there's concern. Um, I don't know exactly how it works, but there's concern about fires, right? And so one of the things they said, they're like, you have to wear cotton or, or wool. So all the things I wore, none of it was, or none of it was supposed to be synthetic, because um, it burns more quickly. Um, <laughs> but actually, though, the the most horrifying thing that they told us, they're like, if you get trapped on the ocean sea floor, you know, a mile and a half below the surface, I think that's how deep we went. You get trapped down there for like three days, and no one can come get you. <laughs> you you see that lever down there you turn it and the 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 metal sphere that you're all in right it's like the main compartment but there's still like the rest of the sub attached to it right yeah would be released from the rest of the sub and you'd go shooting to the surface and they said 
they said, well, we don't know how fast it would go because it's never happened. Um, so, uh, you know, hold on to something if that happens. <laughs> I was like, you Great, don't I can't. test that? Well, I don't know how you would, but... Um... Yeah, I remember uh, thinking, uh, well, great, I can't wait to die that way. So You can't put a, a sub with no one in it with the monitor thing and then uh, have the thing lift off. But, and... but their safety record, um, I think for Alvin at least, I can't speak for all submarines, like small submarines, but um, they have a really good record and, and the engineers who work on it I remember watching them on my trip. They basically put it together and take it apart, like the outer parts, every day to check. They check everything. Every every trip, they spend so much time um, cleaning it, taking care of it, replacing parts. Like they're really, they really know what they're doing. Um, so yeah. I felt I felt very confident. But it was kind of in the safety briefing of like, well, if the worst possible case scenario happens, this is what you do. Yeah. So. That's why I can't own a submarine. I just don't trust myself to keep up yeah. with the necessary right. maintenance. Yeah, that's the only reason, right? Yeah, it's the only. I mean, I've come close a lot of times. Well, where uh, would you put one if you had one? Uh, you know, yeah, in a trailer. You'd, you, you'd, <laughs> I drive around with my. Like, with check my out my sub submarine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because I want to be able to go into a lot of different places with my uh -huh. with my submarine i travel quite a bit and that's you, you know that that's the well then you really gotta uh, not not just to know how to do the maintenance but then you're gonna get a lot of questions at gas stations too and you know you're gonna ha like the you know the mechanics are gonna be very interested in the submarine you're gonna have to know what you're talking about they're gonna ask you if it has a hemi and all that um so you know i considered all these things and i thought you know what maybe maybe a submarine isn't the most practical thing that i could buy right now no and so I we'll mean, see maybe maybe in the future someday someday uh, we um, can dream has anyone ever been stuck for more than 12 hours in elven um i don't i don't know of a story that doesn't mean there isn't one that you know, there might be one that exists, but I, I personally don't know of any. When you were saying the crazy, the scariest thing was, wh where my brain was, was that they were going to be like, if you get stuck on the bottom for three days, you pull this lever and it kills you. <laughs> <laughs> no. and, and I'm uh, relieved that you get a chance to hopefully not get the bends and shoot shoot yeah. to the surface well so it's all pressure right like they when they seal it off uh, oh, supposedly all the pressure inside there is the same and so the steel on the outside is like I withstanding see. the pressure from the outside um that's my understanding of it but you know someone who's an so engineer, it just might be a rough ride right right but it's still you don't you got seatbelts in those things i don't remember any seatbelts but I, it was okay. a long time ago. I went uh, in 2007 when I went. Okay, so... It was a long time ago. Maybe they have seatbelts. Faint memory now. of seatbelts. <laughs> All right, I, I have 47 more questions about submarines, and then I can let you go. Um, no, I... Uh, 
I, I have uh that that was uh that was mostly all that I all that I wanted to um ask you. I was I was still curious with the with the going back to the um the vent um and, and you have this whole ecosystem around a vent. Mm-hmm. Vent goes away. Has that has an event like that happened where it's just like time's up? We happen to be there at the sliver of time when this event that's been around for a million years ends, and now this whole little ecosystem is destroyed. Yeah, I mean well, that must I mean, be a thing, right? It depends on the vent system. The vent system that I got to visit, they had eruptions every like couple of years to every or to a decade. It would, you know, so it wasn't an un uncommon event. So I think the animals were kind of adapted to having what seemed like a lot of larvae in the water column too. And so they were able to colonize new vents that emerge because sometimes, you know, there's a lava eruption and it erases one, but then other ones might pop up. Um, That's so, amazing. What a, yeah. I mean, these things are all you're already just blasting confetti into the void <laughs> hoping for a, a something to survive and that but you also as an individual your entire home goes away and you look around at the vast infinite uh <laughs> whirling chaos around you and you just go i guess we'll head that way maybe <laughs> see if we run into something uh, do they have like ways well, of? I you know the scale of these animals and the scale of the eruption is probably I I don't know but I'm assuming that the lava for a lot of it just like covers them you know burns them into oblivion. Um, a lot of the animals I studied tend to to not move very fast and um, or were attached to the bottom, but I could see maybe some fish or crabs. Oh, I remembered my other really stupid, ridiculous question. I'm sorry to... I mean, well, whatever. We've had a lovely... Why am I apologizing <laughs> for having fun on my own show? You're having yeah. fun. We're both having fun. Here's my... I'm apologizing because you may not have good answers for this. Do you know anything about the history of sea scallops uh, or hu humans use of sea scallops i was just thinking about how i don't really care for sea scallops and then it got me thinking who put the first one in their mouth and when did they become popular and just on the off chance that you happened to dig into some sea scallop fun facts that had nothing to do with your scientific work i thought i would ask yeah, so I mean, those are good questions. Uh, in terms <laughs> of generous. no, let me let me. <laughs> uh, scallops for most people are incredibly delicious. I mean, I I do think that yeah, yeah there's a lot of people that are wrong about a lot of things. Right, <laughs> I take it you're not a seafood person. <laughs> I'm um, not a huge seafood person, I, and I'm being silly. I'm yeah. fine. With, I'm fine with scallops. Hold the calamari like shrimp. Oddly enough. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, like, my favorite seafood is crab, but I really like working with bivalves because I think they're really cool animals. And I also like working with the, the people in those industries. So there's multiple reasons to, to like an animal, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, so, you know, people have been eating not just sea scallops, but the, you know, bivalves, any anything with the two hard shells, right? They kind of look like uh, rock 
food <laughs> mm-hmm. for a really long time, like thousands and thousands of years. And, um, uh, and there's like hundreds of scallop species all over the world. And scallops have been like, maybe not sea scallops, the, the species I worked with specifically, but there are a lot of scallops that have been used like symbolically in cultures too. Like there's a pilgrimage in Spain. Um, I'm so happy I asked this. Now. Right. And I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the saint. I, I want to say it's like St. John or something, but there's this long pilgrimage. Um, I would have to Google it that uh, the, the symbol of the saint is the scallop shell. And he apparently would like go door to door with a mm. scallop shell and ask for just enough food to fill the shell. And so that's why, that's my understanding of why it's a symbol for it. And it's a, also like a, a fertility pilgrimage. So people, some people who de- do it because they want to get pregnant. So there's symbols of fertility, which to me is something I connect with quite a bit because I worked with gonads so much. Um, and then, you know, think of like, uh, I mean, I'm going sort of on a cultural rant here, but like the Botticelli painting of Venus coming out of the shell, right? She's the goddess of uh, love and she's on a giant, giant shell in that painting. Um, but it's also a symbol of, um, I think I was reading in some, I don't know if it's Irish culture, but it's also like the symbol of like the setting sun. So it can mean death too in certain cultures. Uh, so there's there's a lot of cultural significance and the shells, you know, have been used on all sorts of like emblems of family crests and whatever. So there's a lot of really interesting history of its symbolism. And so presumably people have been eating them for a long time. And there, I think there are divers that dive for them in like, uh, I want to say Japan, but there are some other countries as well with, with um, cultures have been doing diving specifically for for scallop species and and other species but for like a really really long time i don't know if it's hundreds or thousands of years but so there's a there's a lot of of uh history and lots of history we don't even know about (laughs) and i could go on about like oyster shell middens and and i in terms of like weird weird things that people eat from the sea i think the weirdest thing i like i just have a hard time wrapping my mind around is uh, have you heard of Hakarl? I don't know if I'm saying that right. No, but I'm excited. Uh, you, so, Greenland shark. Have you heard of them? No. Okay, they're they're in like northern seas, at least the North Atlantic. Um, they're really they can be really old. I think I think there's some estimates that there's like found one that was like three to five hundred years old. I don't know. I'm not a shark person. They're really old. <laughs> And if you were to eat them raw, they're like filled with ammonia, which is poisonous. So someone, I don't know when, in Iceland took um, presumably a dead Greenland shark. I don't know if they killed it or it washed ashore, buried it for some long period of time. Yeah. Like the ammonia, I think, comes out of it or whatever. It's sort of like a curing process. And then they dug it up again and ate it and yeah. didn't die. And they're like, we're going to keep doing this. That's how we do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, if at first you don't succeed. So, uh, and I <laughs> don't know your if i dig it up later and try it again. Right. And I don't know if I've got like all the poisonous compounds. I know ammonia is a big part of it, but, um, I don't we'll you get know, the fact check team on it. Yeah. Yeah. But, but when we, my husband and I went to Iceland, there's a, a Greenland museum 
Green, sorry, Greenland Shark Museum, and you can go and and see their museum, and it's very and, small. And they have and samples. And eat it. Yeah. Yes, they have samples. I did not eat it, but my husband did, and, um, and? Uh, he he thought it was okay. Um, that's a but, lot of work for okay. That's a big yeah. risk for okay. <laughs> that's like that's a that's a bit of a sunk cost fallacy situation right. with one once you've like buried the shark, you did the thing, you survived, then you gotta tell yourself a narrative that like, mmm, yum. <laughs> right, right. Look at this novel thing that I figured yeah. out. Now they hang them that that place they hang them in sheds oh, like good. these slabs of meat uh, yeah. just hanging out there yeah, like, yeah. they don't I don't think they bury them anymore Yeah that's I like that move <laughs> <laughs> I like the I thought the bury Yeah the burying process was okay it, Yeah it, Yeah that, that all right Um well I would try it. I'm not going to lie to you. I would absolutely try it. Um, all right. Well, I I have to tell you, my sea scallop, um, uh, uh, my sea scallop shell overfloweth uh, with <laughs> information. You are. Well, you have one behind you, don't you? What is that painting behind you? Um, the blue one oh, higher up. What is that? Some sort of a. I guess it's like some sort of trippy oyster shell But thing. that's like more of a scallop shape shell. Is it? Yeah. This is some That looks more like a scallop in a lot of other I mean, like Zachary Brown, I think is this guy's yeah. name. I get a bunch of art from uh people that make cool things. I gotta change this one out actually. There's been a yeah. bunch of uh but uh this is what a sea scallop shell looks like? Uh some some look similar to that. Uh, Does it a have a forms. weird maze in in the middle, a <laughs> labyrinth? Uh some, yeah, very special ones. <laughs> <laughs> um all right, so where where can people find everything that you do other than uh, the links on YouTube and my site? Oh man. Um just, just... I do have a skylarbear.wordpress.com site which I try to update with links to all the things I've done including my research uh and I'm hoping to develop a better page as now I'm a faculty member but that's where you can find a lot of what I've done and I'm on Twitter. So at uh Dr. SR Bear. And can you fix my Wikipedia page for me? <laughs> um, <laughs> what happened like eight years ago or something like that? Some dude was like, hey, big fan. I want to write your Wikipedia page. I was like, have at it. I mean, who am I to stop you? Uh, <laughs> I don't even, I don't have an understanding of how that works. Go for it. And it's... Uh, he must have got a collection of bless his heart but he must have got a collection of uh newspaper articles which bias towards like creating these like very dramatic like narratives of like mm -hmm. and this comic that started out in an open mic rose to the level of a this and that and it's like so, and that's sort of how my Wikipedia page reads because it's all based off of these like silly um, newspaper articles that that 
don't usually put stand-up comedy in their newspapers so when they do right. they try to make it seem like a real uh hero's journey and so it's embarrassing um and i want to update my wikipedia page so when we're done recording i'm going to ask you <laughs> two brief questions about that but um uh th thank you so much for joining me and yeah well thanks, thanks for, for having me shane doing story collider and all the awesome science communication that you do good luck with uh covid teaching and teaching remotely you might find that teaching remotely is a uh, is a cool fit for you i think some people are taking to it pretty well i think so that i've talked with some professors that are like i kind of like it but yeah there's pros I think and cons a lot of my work uh, a lot of my strengths have been in-person interactions. Mm. So it's not, I suppose it could be worse, but um, I personally would prefer to be in person again someday, but safely. <laughs> yeah. Well, two years. That's right, my, yeah. My estimate. yeah. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Skylar. Oh, thanks, Jane. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people.